Hello everyone and welcome to a special Patreon exclusive episode. No, sorry, it's not a Patreon exclusive episode because Drew and I just <laughs> had that discussion 30 seconds before we went live. This is actually going to be available for everybody um, as of right now. Uh, uh, for February 2020, this episode that we've decided to include with this month, uh, Drew and I decided to stick with the theme of Black History Month and discuss a bit of a longer story today than we normally do for what is normally our Patreon exclusive episodes. We're talking today about The Ballad of Black Tom, a novella by Victor Laval. And Drew, first, I just want to ask you how you found this story, because what the f*** did I just read? <laughs> uh, so I found this story through Tor.com. Um, okay. I, I've only been writing for Tor.com for like a little over a year now, but I have been following especially their short fiction for several years. And I think this this story is uh, two or three years old now. Um, and and it was it was another one of those like do not look back my lion, which was the previous uh, Patreon exclusive episode we did, where the title just leapt out at me. I was like, wow, that like that's a beautiful title. And uh, and knowing Victor Laval, you know, he's an African American writer. Uh, the, the decision to use the word black in that title, you know, is, is a signifier, right? And I have wanted to read this book because I wanted to see what he was doing with this story and with that title for years now. But I never got around to it. And when we were discussing doing a, a story specifically for Black History Month, uh, this was the first one that jumped to my mind. And I'm glad we did. I will also say I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah, that makes two of us. And you're the one that suggested it. I thought you had read it already at this point. No, no. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what the story was about until about uh, 40% in. I, but I, that said, I I have a beer for this episode. That like it, it was sort of in the back of my mind when I started reading it. And I found out that the setting was in New York City. I was like, oh, I think I could... I could do something cool with this. And I was thinking about doing this, and I didn't realize just how perfect this beer was going to be until the second half of the book. And that said, okay. I'm going to go ahead and open my beer right now. That's quaint, because I just took the first sip of mine. Yeah, mm. no, um, I remember reading a few reviews going into this, just trying to look it up, just be like, hey, let's, well, let's see what people are thinking uh, when, when you first uh, proposition this one uh, to me, Drew. And I, I remember seeing a few reviews saying that it's it's very Lovecraftian in style, um, or at least I thought it was Lovecraftian in style. But turns out it's actually Lovecraftian in content, which I was not prepared for in any way whatsoever. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even know what like I had I was I was going into this one completely blind. I went into this blank slate, not knowing what to expect. Um, and it really took me away. I mean, I, I was drawn right in. You know, Laval has this way of, of writing a scene with tension. Uh, he can bring out... he Like, for example, he made me personally feel anxiety at the beginning of this book. As I'm safe at home here, in my bed, snug as a bug in a rug. You know? When this, this mm -hmm. white man stops, uh, Thomas Tester asked if he was a musician. But then he follows yep. it up with asking if Thomas Tester had missed his stop. Like, I kind of felt surrounded in a, like in a weird way, like a, perhaps a claustrophobic, pseudo claustrophobia kind of feel. It was surreal, and I thought it was impressive. Like, what do you think about 
on a sentence level like, like basis how Laval writes. Okay. 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 Oh, I was, so, was so going to say that first okay, that was going to be a big one. Two okays. Let's hear we're it. We're going down, you know, digging into it here. Sure. And this needs a little bit of backstory. Okay. So, Context. you have read All Flames cast. I have, but I do want to preface this with that it was several years ago, and it was only once. Yeah. So... One of the things I tried to do in All Flames cast is one of the characters is discriminated against because of his skin color. Okay. And when I wrote that, I thought I did a pretty good job with it. It Was it Tymon? Uh, it was Tymon, yeah. Okay, thought so, yeah. Yeah. And I, over time now, like, because I wrote that, the, when I finished the, the, the first completed draft was July of 2015. I've gone through several drafts of it since. I've tweaked things. I think I've made it a lot stronger. But one of the things that stood out to me as needing more work was Timon's experience as a discriminated person. Okay, yeah. And, Fair uh, enough. I, I sent it off to a, a new beta reader uh, just, just a few months ago. Oh. And she is somebody I've been beta reading for. And a lot of her stories deal with people of color. And so I, like, I wasn't even thinking about her specifically as, like, uh, a, a really good beta reader for this issue that had been lingering with me. But as it turned out, she nailed it. And when she came back to me just a couple weeks ago with, with her completed, uh, you know, feedback, one of the biggest things she harped on was... Timon's experience and how there are aspects of it that rang true for her as a person of color in America and how there are certain experiences that she's had and she also said it wasn't complete she said there were things that she described as micro micro uh, oh my god microtransgressions uh, sorry I've, I, I will preface this I've had a couple of mimosas before I came in here so I'm, I'm a little all over the place but uh she brought up how there are these just everyday unintentional things that other people react to around her that we see with Charles Thomas Tester in this, where thing people aren't being specifically racist. Okay. They're they're not they're not being like, oh, you're a black man, screw you. They they just have such ingrained beliefs that in their normal course of action, they say and do things around him. Unconsciously. And that that's what make makes him it uncomfortable. Because it's not and, unconscious. Okay, got you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and to to talk about what you were just saying, like, make <clears throat> it feel claustrophobic, make you <clears throat> feel isolated I, I and was confined. Here, and right back there, eight feet behind me right now, snug as a bug in a rug, just, just soft in the covers, warm <laughs> on a Sunday morning reading this series, and I felt claustrophobic, or maybe pseudo-claustrophobic. I felt uncomfortable, and I needed more space. Yeah. Yeah, and so between getting her beta feedback on, on my last book and reading this right around the same time, it struck me, you know? Like, I'm, I'm a... I'm an Irish Catholic guy in Colorado. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and you're six I, we, foot four. We, Let's not forget that. Yeah, Coming from a, a Portuguese guy, that's, yeah. 
you know, we joked that Fort Collins, where I basically grew up after I moved from New York, was a vanilla valley. Like, it, it, <laughs> it is such a like such a foreign experience for me that you know I tried to write what I thought was a, a valid experience for a a person of color or or just anybody who is experiencing racism mm-hmm. in All Flames cast, and and I thought when I initially wrote it that I did a pretty good job. And after hearing her experiences and then reading The Ballad of Black Tom and seeing a story that specifically deals with racism, I mean, it was, it was crazy. And of course, this, this story takes place in the 1920s. You know, it's a, a very different time than it is now. But this is still something that my friend talked about. You know, she, she's our age, you know? Like, she's not living in the 1920s. Like, she's still experiencing things like that. Like, she talked to me about the first time somebody called her the N-word. And she's Indian. What? Hold on. What? Yeah. And and so, like, just that right there says everything you need to know about how some people now, are still... Now, I just want to make sure you, you mean of the, of the nationality Indian, not in, like a Yeah, like, like a from Native the American. sub-Asian continent. Yeah, like, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was eye-opening to me and That's it was eye opening to me reading this this story because i've read i mean i've read plenty of stories before uh from uh people of color and specifically of african descent but a lot of those are of course all in like the science fiction and fantasy bent and okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of them deal with historical contest texts and so it's not as like uh, you know like like this one was but given the juxtaposition of her feedback as a modern person of color on my story while also reading The Ballad of Black Tom, like, I mean, it was crazy. And yeah. I thought that was, in a way, um, perfect for the fact that we're reading this for Black History Month. Yeah. You always. know, because this is, this is why we wanted to do this, was we wanted to, like, validate the experiences of black people in North America, right? And and this really drove it home for a white guy living in Fort Collins, Colorado. <laughs> like, Yeah, and, and, and what you're talking about here, I think this is something that we can take to an even higher magnitude. It, it rings true on a whole level above, as, as just a general rule about writing, I think. Just... For the, like, for the most part, write what you know, and if you don't know, you have to talk to somebody who does, because it could be immediately evident to someone who does, if they're reading your work. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so... Like, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know going into this episode, you, you said you were expecting this one to be a little shorter, and now we're, like almost 15 minutes in. And yeah, I'm not going to lie. I've only been through 20% of the notes that I actually did write We down. haven't even talked about the story yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but this, is, this is why I was so excited once I read this book to talk about it. And this, you know, beyond just the, the discussion of racism and the discussion of identity as a person of color in this story and without this story, um, you brought up in in the reviews you read about how this was, you know, Lovecraftian. Yep. And, wow, is it Lovecraftian. And I wanted to ask you, before we really dive into this, have you read any H.P. Lovecraft? I have not. I am just a casual outside observer who has 
dipped his toes into that proverbial lake and been chilled to the bone. Um, okay. But as, like, everything Lovecraft that I have experienced, um, it, it, you could fit inside a, a thimble with room for a thumb, I think, as Robert Jordan put it once oh. in The Wave of Time. <laughs> like, I, I really have no knowledge about H.P. Lovecraft, about the body of his work. I just know, I, I hear Lovecraft, I think dark writer alone in a mansion, and I think Cthulhu. That's all I know about H.P. Lovecraft. And I found out okay. some things about H.P. Lovecraft that I really was not expecting or hoping to find out about him when I was doing research yeah. for this episode. Yeah, so um, I don't know if when you read this story, you read the dedication. No, I actually just had the audiobook. There wasn't the, no dedication in the audiobook, I don't think. Okay, so this read, is listen. A, a an, an African-American author, right? Yep, yep. And I assume at this point you you've kind of uh, uh, learned some things about H.P. Lovecraft's I have. prejudices. Yeah. Yes. So the dedication to this from Victor Laval, oh, a black man, is for H.P. Lovecraft with all my conflicted feelings. Oh, with all my conflicted feelings. That might have been... That actually kind of rings a bell. That might have been in the audiobook. Forget what I said earlier. That very well could have been included in the audible version. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, for any listeners who maybe aren't familiar with H.P. Lovecraft's background, the guy was virulently racist. Yeah, see, I have, uh, a, whole, I have a whole section <laughs> about this that I wanted to discuss, but I was... I am also prescient of the fact that you did just bring up how the... Like, we haven't really launched into the story yet. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, if you want to get this out of the way, we can get this out of the way, too, because I have a few things I want to say We have this. to get this out of the way. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I was very, very shocked to find out what I did about H.P. Lovecraft. I had no idea what kind of reputation he had. He was apparently a very racist, very xenophobic, very openly anti-Semitic person, despite yep. the fact that he actually married um, a Jew, apparently. But it, uh, I, I actually <laughs> and I actually looked up some opinion pieces about the uh, overt racism because, of course, you know, in, in 2020, you want to make sure you, you check your sources. You want to make sure that nobody's just making an open cry against a figure um, for, for some sort of socio or oh. political gain right oh oh no this so is very accurate I looked, yeah. yes i looked into it <laughs> i read a few of the opinion pieces i found where they were linking to and i found a lot of lovecraft's actual open work and i was both surprised and disgusted and dis i mean just plain disappointed in what i found yeah so i have read uh, a few hp lovecraft stories and man so for let somebody me tell who you, is such an he... innovator in his craft like oh <sighs> yeah, like the the guy the guy had some brilliant brilliant ideas, and I think that is why, despite his hangups, shall we say, um, <laughs> his universe, his idea with Cthulhu and the Great Old Ones and, and this cosmic horror, has persisted. Yeah, you have to separate uh, the literary value from the colorful yeah. lens of the source. Yeah. But man, if you go back and read some of his old stories, like. Yeah, Oof. there is a, there's there's a poem. The way there's a, there's, he treats. Yeah, oh. there, there's a 1912 poem called "On the Creation of," and I'm I'm not gonna say this next word. It's a you can probably guess which N word I would have used. Uh -huh. okay. um, followed by the plural with an S. Um, but in this beast, the gods, having just 
designed man and beast to create blacks in semi-human form to populate the space in between. So that tells you everything you need to know, I think, about yeah. what we're approaching in, in this discussion yeah. here. And so I think the next step of this conversation is how, after the death of H.P. Lovecraft, his legacy has been expanded upon and enriched, I think, in, you know, in really good ways, but expanded for more audiences. Mm. And a story like this, a story like The Ballad of Black Tom, that is so true to the spirit of the cosmic horror that H.P. Lovecraft was writing, while at the same time being so antithetical to Lovecraft's personal prejudices yeah i think that's a beautiful thing it's a deft move it, it, it like literally speaking it's it's got a it, it gives it a value that a lot of um other things i imagine wouldn't in this day and age like it's it's it was cool it like finishing the story from the time let me put it this way from the time i finished the story to the time i finished writing my notes and having done my research this was a very different story to me yeah a very very yeah. different story yeah and so I want to kind of dive into the story itself yep. at this yep. point. And I want to start at the end. And I want to talk about oh. how I was, with my experience of reading through this, I was almost surprised when it went from, you know, Charles Thomas Tester to Detective Malone in the second half. And I was thinking, is the black guy really going to be made out to be the villain here? Right, it was a little, it was a little off-putting when you, if you saw it coming, right? And then that final scene with Black Tom going back to the Victoria Society, and he's humanized once again, and you you have this understanding of why he did what he did. And I'm yeah. not going to excuse him. <laughs> I still think the guy was, you know, made some some very poor, you know, decisions. Uh, I personally would probably not get involved in eldritch sorcery. Uh, Who knows? And, it sounds and fun. Torture and kill people, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh, that part sounds a little less fun. Yeah, but Metal, though. it it helped. It helped kind of bring uh, Black Tom, bring Thomas Tester back into a character that the reader can sympathize with, and that made the story really run full circle for me interesting interesting no i i can't say that i felt any any bit of reward seeing um what happened in the last scene with black tom buckeye but <clears throat> um let's see here what what i will say what helped me get through this short story i'm using parentheses on that um especially one this size was was the mystery of this little yellow book Mm, I okay. particularly liked how Laval drew us in near the very beginning with this little glimpse of the paranormal that we got, like at, like as the book literally catches fire when it's exposed yeah, yeah. To, to sunlight. And I, I think it was Ma'at who takes it. Mm -hmm. how, how is that spelled, by the way? Because it's pronounced Ma'at. So M-A, yeah, okay, like Ma. capital M-A, yep. Ma, and then A-T-T. -T. Oh, I, I wrote down A-H-T is what I thought it was. Yeah. Phonetically guessing there. Um mm. But, but also when he's given this password, for the lack of a better term, I'm just calling it a password. I, I decided Ashmodai. to have... 
Yeah. I decided to have a social or mnemonic experiment with myself. Um, I was listening to the audiobook and I was actually lying in bed. And when I heard Sweetem speak the magic word, I made a specific attempt in that moment to not write it down, but just try to memorize it because I knew it would be asked mm. again later. I knew it would be yeah, asked yeah. again later. Um, turns out I suck because big surprise, I was off by about four or five letters. I, I for some reason, wanted to say Obrodai. But that, of course, <laughs> is from Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. So yes, it is. Um, yeah. What was it? Ashmodai. Ashmodai. How was that spelled? A S H M O D A I. Okay, Ashmodai. Got you. That's that would have been easier. I thought it was an O. The audiobook the audiobook narrator would uh, kind of pronounce that in a weird way. By the way, the audiobook narrator, phenomenal. Really. Phenomenal. Okay. Um, he had like he he. He really brought Black Tom to life for me. He really mm-hmm. he brought um, Sweetem to life with this 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 air, this kind of I don't want to say weaselly, but this very um, eccentric, perhaps esoteric individual. By the way, turns out I you know I keep saying by the way I'm going off on a whole bunch of tangents here. Turns out that this character Sweetem, as well as Malone, is another character from an earlier work of H.P. Lovecraft. Yes. The horror at Red Hook. Yeah. Am, I, am I remembering that correctly? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, mm-hmm. here. Yeah, the horror at Red Hook. Um, but yeah, both those characters have been, you know, previously featured in, in Lovecraft's body of work. There. Um, yes. But I forget where I was going with that. What was I just talking about? Sweet um, shit. <laughs> Trying to remember the word. Well, well, if if you can't remember, I want to talk about Black Tom's character because I think this is the core of the story. Obviously. Uh, you know, this is something where in, in a, a remarkably short span, you know, we just talked about Do Not Look Back, My Lion, and the character development there. But the character development there is very focused and, and narrow and to the point. Here, I think Black Tom has a pretty remarkable journey. Uh, it, it's... You know, he's, he's got this, like, con man thing going where he's dabbling in the arcane and, and you know, faking being a musician and all of this. And then he loses his father in an act of, I think, pretty blatant racism. Uh-huh. <laughs> you think? And he, uh, and, and he, well, I mean, there, there could be some subtext there that it was not necessarily about his skin color. I mean, it was Howard, much. though. I mean, Howard is pretty yeah. clearly painted as a character. Yes, but at the end, he's a little bit brought back. Anyway, anyway. Um, the, uh, uh, the way Black Tom progresses in the second half of this book rings so true to the first half and also so antithetical to the first half because he he's so averse to the idea of violence right like when he finds out his father Otis has used the razor and he's like whoa like that's crazy to me he's so defensive and not aggressive because that's the life he has had to adapt living in Harlem and living in New York City in the 1920s and then in the second half, he completely flips that. You know, he becomes a violently aggressive person. 
Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, it, it rings true to his experiences as a black man in New York City and the the crimes committed upon him and his people, right? And and where Sweetum tries to position himself as a friend to the non-white people, you know, not just not just African Americans, but Caribbean people, Middle Eastern, you know, Chinese, Japanese, like all, all of these people that he invites to the party, he he positions himself as a friend, but of course he's positioning himself really as an overlord and just trying to perpetuate this current structure of people of color being oppressed by the white man. In this case, specifically the white man. Speedum, you know, yeah, and and so Black Tom sees through it, and that's why he walks through the door, yeah, and he closes it behind him, you know. So, like, it, it, it's just so cool how the character development here diverges but remains parallel and makes sense with Black Tom. Yeah, um, I, I remember being at that point in the narrative and still being very uncomfortable with the character of Black Tom. Um, like, I mean, the dude does some sketchy stuff. There's some, some, oh, very, yeah. some very, very irredeemable stuff. Um, but, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I was left very confused at the end of this story. I'm not going to lie. I will be very honest. Well, so the confusion at the end, I think that's part of what makes it Lovecraftian. Is sure it could be all of all of his, you know, regard. Cthulhu cosmic horror stories. They end nebulously. They do they. They don't give you. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so classic. Got you. Because it's so much of what this is about is the mystery and the unknown and this theme of the unknown driving people insane it is the craving to know but being unable to right (laughs) madness is constant in lovecraftian horror see i i don't have a background in english literature but i do have uh, a formal education in film and i can say that thing that very same point rings true in terms of offering mystery in like in darkness, in terms of of actually displaying the horror and displaying the monster, that's something that 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 rings true in a lot of Alfred Hitchcock and more recently M Night Shyamalan too. Um, I sure. think it was it was it was Alfred Hitchcock who put it in in the perfect way. And of course, this is one of the most uh, popular quotes attributed to him. But he said at one point, "It's not what might come out of the closet that scares. Sorry, it's not what comes out of the closet that scares you. It's what might come out of the closet." Yeah, and I think that yeah. that that stands hand in hand with what you're saying here. It's the fear, mm-hmm. it's the unknown that we fear above anything that we do know, and Lovecraft yeah, and, is so deft at handling that. And and with Lovecraft, it was such a, a major point of where even when the characters in his story see and experience the mystery, the mysteries, they cannot comprehend them. And so, in this story, you know, uh, Malone got to see through the portal into the dead city at the bottom of the ocean with the sleeping king, Cthulhu. And he sees it. Mm-hmm. And I... I, and, I, I sorry, go ahead. But he can't comprehend it. And that's why he wants to close his eyes. 
And that's why there is this horror of having the eyelids removed. You cannot right. look away. You have to look at and deal with something that you cannot physically or mentally or emotionally comprehend or grapple with. And that is what drives him mad. And we see him succumbing to that madness mm-hmm. later on. And, and then it's the slingshot, right? Where he's like recovering from it, where his mind is protecting himself from the madness. Yes. And then he, <laughs> he has this moment seeing the clouds and he loses it. You know, it's... This is a very much a Lovecraftian thing. If you go all the way back to The Call of Cthulhu, the, the classic Lovecraft short story, where we have vivid descriptions of the city rising up from under the sea, it, it's talked about in terms of, like, the architecture is indescribable. The angles don't make sense. You know, it, it, it seems physically impossible to have a city shaped like this. And to draw back to something that Wheel of Time fans might understand, it's it's something like the redstone doorway. You know, where, okay. where you can describe parts of it, but as a whole, it does not make physical sense. Yeah, nor does it need to. I think that's a very clear, that's yeah. a very important distinction. Well, um, well, and I think in, in the Wheel of Time, it doesn't need to. In Lovecraftian horror, it shouldn't. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay, I can take yeah. that. I can take that. I like it. Um, I so. do want. I do want to talk a little more about the raw horror elements and certain reactions I had oh, to certain yeah, yeah. parts of them. Um, when Tester opened the door at Sweetum's first party or a second, I can't remember which one it was, but he opened the door and he found Malone standing there. The first one. The yeah. was the first one. Okay, and he's looking in yeah. from a different building. Mm-hmm. I got chills in that moment. I was a little creeped out. I had the hair in the back of my neck stand up. Um, more with, I think it was more with the imagery of Malone just standing there, completely still, than it was with like the apparent geometric paradox. Um, of course, that scene is given a lot more weight later in the narrative when we see yes. it from <laughs> Malone's point of view, and we kind of understand a little more of what was happening there, or at least get a little mm-hmm. more context. I still don't understand it anymore. Um, but the part that really that really made me go that one like made me want to throw the phone across the basement and get it away from me was when I heard the description from Malone's point of view of Ma'at at the doorway and the mass of Ma'at that is yeah. that he glimpses past yeah. the cracked door this and I wrote down long trailing bulk visitive only to sensitive eyes I was like nope 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 this, I am out. I am getting serious Resident Evil Biohazard vibes out of this one, and I don't want to deal with it. So I have a question to ask you. Okay. Since you haven't read any other Cthulhu yeah, Lovecraft that's stories. Me. It's this guy. When when did you realize this was a Cthulhu story? Was it when they used the word? Yeah, when they the used name? the word. It's a little embarrassing, okay. but it's when they used the word. Yep. It okay, might have been okay. kicking around in my head. I might have been kind of ready to hear it because at this point I had heard a lot or at least been creeped out enough about the unknown and I had in the back of my mind been considering the reviews that linked it with HP Lovecraft um, so I want to I want to bring it back to something different yeah okay uh, with, with metal with music <laughs> okay. uh, how into Metallica are you into Metallica specifically I yeah. put it. To, I I know about twenty of their songs, and I can play like ten or twelve of them on guitar. But okay, 
I so was, they have a song called The Call of Cthulhu. Do they? And I they have another song called The Thing That Should Not Be. And that know. song specifically has lines from the short story The Call of Cthulhu. Really? And one of those is this idea of dead but dreaming. And that and so I was I was wondering because they mentioned that in the story, the the idea of like the the you know, the sleeping king who Don't they have dead, a song called dream. like Creeping Sleep or something like that? Creeping Death? Uh, Creeping, that's oh, okay, not about mind. yeah. Mind, that's yeah, actually okay. about the um uh the plagues visited upon Egypt by Moses. Ah. Um, Ooh. I yeah, feel like we're yeah. discovering a whole fount of knowledge oh, man, that I didn't dude, know if, Drew McCaffrey had. You, you big Metallica you fan? You clearly need to go check out Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets, those oh, two dude. albums, because oh, they're two of the God. greatest metal albums ever. As far as Ride the Lightning every goes, every song on both of them, I have are Fade amazing. to Black on repeat. I fucking oh, love yeah. that song, that intro, the I mean, solo by Kirk Hammett. I mean, Master mm-hmm. of Puppets. I I can't argue with that. Yeah, no, that's well, so, solid, solid record. Uh, they have these instrumental tracks usually at the end of each album. For, for a while mm-hmm. during their early career though the instrumental at the end of like Ride the Lightning is Call of Cthulhu oh interesting yeah. and then the thing that should not be is on Master of Puppets okay okay yeah. well keep in mind I'll check those out yeah yeah yeah. Uh, let's see uh, here <laughs> um, yikes I said I, I, oh, it's kind of a style discussion but I wasn't expecting especially after the first half I wasn't expecting the graphic detail we got later with the scalping Mm. And the uh, and I wrote down the uh, eyelid ectomy. That was yes. a little, little disturbing. <laughs> but that's but, Lovecraft for you, yeah, man. Yeah. Like, that is, is it really? exactly Lovecraft the is kind also of horror graphic as well. He's not just like. Yeah, he strikes I mean, me it, as more of like a fear of the, the unknown the kind of writer. Idea. I mean, well, but read. it's the idea. So th- this is such a central theme to Lovecraftian horror: is the idea of wanting to look away. And not being able to. Okay. And I, I did particularly love that metaphor that that came back with us to haunt, I almost said Howard, to haunt Malone. He's like, oh, you want to look away? Well, guess what? You're never closing your eyes again there, bud. And yep. it's just like yep. slice, slice, and ugh. That's that not. But I did appreciate the metaphor at the time. I was like, fuck, that's cool. Gross, but it's cool. Um, yeah. yeah. And the last point I have, just, just, just a one-liner that I loved. Black Tom. All right. I'll take Cthulhu over you devils any day. Oh, yes. And then it all clicked. Surprisingly, shockingly, and embarrassingly, then it all clicked. And I went, I was left going, oh, my God. But, yeah. That's what so it left me with. <laughs> my, my last point. I want to talk about a sentence that he uses to draw the story full circle. Okay. At the beginning... When Tom is accosted by Malone and Howard, the first and time. Malone, and Malone, kind of intimates to Tom that he knows there's like this mystical, arcane stuff going on. And Tommy says, "You're a cop. Can't you protect me?" And Malone responds, "Guns and badges don't scare everyone." Okay. Then, at the end. Or near the end. When Tom is uh, being, you know, manhandled, or, or Tom is manhandling Malone while the machine guns are destroying the building and the portal is open and all of this craziness yep. is happening. And Malone says, I'm an officer of the law. 
Don't you understand the consequences if you hurt me? Guns and badges don't scare everyone, Black Tom said. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I didn't actually pick up on that. I did not. I'm ashamed to admit I did not pick up on that. Beautiful stuff. Beautifully done. So, uh, yeah, A little I, less I impressive considering into, it was only 140 pages apart. But still, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, I want to I wanna go into the final draft now. Cool. Did you drink anything for this episode? I did drink something for this episode. I actually brought to the table um, a beer that I have lost. Where did it go? Oh shit! Here it is. Okay, got it. Uh, sorry, <laughs> this is the empty the empty can that I put aside here. This is actually a returning brew. I've brought this on before. I don't remember for which episode. I want to say it was a Wheel of Time episode, but don't quote me on that. This okay. is a porter, and I do want to point out I was not intending to bring the darkest of beers on a podcast. That is dedicated to Black History Month. That is entirely a coincidence. <laughs> I realized that about 15 minutes ago, and I was uh, trying not to chuckle with sheepish humiliation there. Um, but this is uh, from Collective Arts Brewing, who we've oh, featured many, times. many, many times. <laughs> this is a porter called Stranger Than Fiction, and I figured it was oh, yeah. appropriate for a Lovecraftian-inspired story that left me reeling and confused in oh, every yes. sense of the word. Stranger than fiction. And as a brew, it's not bad. It's 5.5% ABV. Um, you know, as a porter, as a, as, a, as, a, as a dark beer, you're getting all the chocolate. You're getting all the, the, the coffee. and, and Roasted malts. And, yeah. It's, yeah, less roasted malts, I think, or just less roasting in general. It's actually very sweet. Oh, but, okay. Um, yeah. Collective Arts Brewing. Stranger than fiction. HP Lovecraft-esque. I figured it was appropriate. Very nice. Thank you. So, the beer I brought on today. Ooh, yeah. This is a Golden IPA, 5.5%, from Brooklyn Brewing Company. And you will recognize Brooklyn <laughs> as Brooklyn the location yeah, of yeah. The, most of the second half of this story. Yep. Uh, this is a, a really delightful, easy-drinking IPA, not overly bitter, plenty of hops but like more of like a pineapple-y uh, it's probably brewed with citra hops if I had to guess um, just based on the, the kind of the flavor profile but uh, it's, it's very very good and this is called Brooklyn Defender Brooklyn Defender how about that so we were considering Malone to be the Defender I assume yes yeah but not the but one who ended gonna, the world <laughs> we're gonna move deeper into this so cool. brooklyn brewing Bro brooklyn brewery i should say um i think this is a really appropriate brewery to feature on an episode where we're highlighting black history month because okay. the brewmaster at brooklyn brewery is a guy named garrett oliver and this guy is a legend we're talking about like one of the most respected knowledgeable just incredible brewers in the world the guys african-american he started brewing in like the late 80s he came to brooklyn brewing in uh, 1994 i think it was and became their brewmaster he's now a partial owner of the brewery this guy is is just an absolute hero i mean he, the you can count the number of people in the world who know more about beer on one hand. Like, he he's unbelievable. Um, he is 
what we call a master cicerone. So if you're familiar with the term sommelier. No. Can't say okay, I am. So, so a sommelier is like a wine expert. Okay. Right? Okay. And a cicerone okay, is is like the American term for a beer expert in that sense. So it's so like sommelier is like a certified more. well but but it's more than that. So yeah, a sommelier is a certified, yeah. tested and certified wine server. And there are levels to it. And so you can have a master sommelier who knows like, you know, who has been tested and proven they know the ins and outs of everything around wine. And with you know, the Cicerone program, it's the same thing. Where you can take your, your certified beer server test. That will, you know, you're a level one, you know, certified beer server. And then, and you can just take that test, like, online. You just have to pass, like, I think it's, like, 75%. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's the level two test. And to pass that, you have to actually taste beers. And identify off flavors. And identify styles and things like that. Identify infected beers. Like, and so it's a whole thing. And then as you go up the ladder, you get to master Cicerone. And there are only a couple of people in the world who are certified master Cicerones. So you have and to have Garrett the Oliver is one it. of them. You've got to have yeah. a... Okay, you've got to oh, have a tongue like yeah. the nose of a Doberman. And so, so this guy is incredible. And in fact, if you go on YouTube and you look up... Uh, I think the video is called something like Beer Expert um, Predicts like Cheap Versus Expensive Beers. It's with Garrett Oliver, and oh, okay. he's given a blind steaks. tasting of two beers at a time, and it's up to him to choose which beer is more expensive. And he breaks down every single one to a T, and he nails every single one which one is more expensive. Because this guy just, he has so much experience, so much skill, it's incredible. He's written a couple of books about Sounds like uh, you really respect this man. pairing beers with food with flavor profiles i mean it, it's absolutely incredible and so when when we started reading this book and i saw it was in new york city and i kind of had an inkling early on i was like well i think i'm gonna try and bring in brooklyn defender and i was like i know it's like black tom's from harlem and like at least early on like his scenes are in queens like, yeah, it's not quite the same because I'll tell you what, you know, but but I could I could at least say like oh it's New York City, but then the second half I'm like oh we're in Brooklyn oh yeah yeah oh I yeah I still <laughs> I still have like a, a a rough copy of the intro that I wrote for this episode here, and I actually did write that it was I, I had expanded a little bit upon what the story is about, and I did say it was from the point of view of Thomas Tester, who is a man I actually did write from Brooklyn, and I will. Hold on, is it from Brooklyn? And I went back and checked. And I went, oh no, Harlem. Okay, but Brooklyn was already in my mind immediately coming out of the story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it, the second half of this story just made it so perfect. I from mean, like Harlem. Yeah, yeah uh, Harlem is in Manhattan, so I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with the boroughs, but like, nope, so not like, at all. Yeah, but Harlem is in Manhattan. Okay. But the second half of the story made it just perfect. So, that is what I wanted to say there. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Um, and and this, this episode went on much longer than the 30 minutes we were estimating. But uh, do you have any final I mean, yeah. thoughts before yeah. we finish up? No, no. I just, I, no, I have absolutely none. It was great. And you can perfect. sum it up in three words. Also weird. Sorry, make that five. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> 
Yeah. So this has been a bonus episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, if you want access to our Patreon short fiction episodes, which Rob mentioned at the beginning, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, you know, in addition to these short episodes, we have stuff like a monthly newsletter. We have monthly short fiction that Rob and I write. You can get access to episodes early. You can request books for us to read. So check that out. Yeah, we just finished recording but the first episode of a, pa- of a patron-suggested series, didn't we? We did. The Last Wish. The yeah. first Witcher book. So, uh, yeah, as always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. What's up? Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody.